Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back to another podcast of Your Cases on Hold. I'm Antonia Chen. I'm deputy editor of Adult Reconstruction, which is the best subspecialty there is in orthopedics. And this is... Uh, I'm Andrew Schoenfeld, deputy editor for Methods. Those who weren't part of it, at least you got to witness. And don't tell them where you bury the bodies. <laughs> so without further ado, we just want to remind you guys, these opinions are our own. They do not reflect anything from JBJS, the board, anything about JBJS, JBJS at all. I do want to give a shout out to the clinical classroom that is sponsoring this. We are still seeking orthopedic surgeons with at least five years of experience following residency or fellowship to join our clinical classrooms team. The goal is to develop questions and learning resources and interested surgeons should be board certified and enthusiastic about education. So please email customer support at jbjs.org to learn more. Without further ado, let's jump into the headlines. What you got for us, Andrew? I have my headline is um, on the getting the message, the declining trend in opioid prescribing for minor orthopedic injuries in children and adolescents by Krakow and colleagues. 30 days free, so everybody knows, no excuses. We'll also delve into why they call Antonia and I the Terrence and Philip of orthopedic research. Yeah, I told you that we won't stop. (laughs) We're talking about the opioid epidemic as it pertains to children or adolescents. And this was work that was conducted using the National Pediatric Health Information System database, which utilizes data from major major pediatric hospitals across the United States affiliated with the Children's Hospital Association. Uh, The data quality and reliability are ensured through a joint effort between the Children's Hospital Association and participating hospitals. So um, although it it seems to me, I've never used this data set, but it seems to me it's kind of like the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, but with a broader scope and obviously specific to to children. So uh, fractures and dislocations presenting to the emergency department or outpatient clinics over a 13 to 14 year period, 2004 to 17 were included. They accounted for variation in these practices using a mixed effects logistic regression model uh, to obtain adjusted estimates. So that is good and interesting. They did find that the national opioid prescription rate in our study population fell from 61% to right around 43% over the course of this time frame. The prescription rates declined dramatically. They're, they're using census regions. So the Northeast, Midwest, Southwest. And um, children were more likely to prescribe opioids in the South. We know from other work, Traven and colleagues more recent in the Journal of American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, that the, the South and the West tend to be the higher prescribers for opioids. So that was borne out here too. The Northeast, which tends to be the most conservative, was the um, lowest prescriber in this study as well. And their their conclusion is um, encouraging, although the opioid prescription rates in these census regions have decreased dramatically over the years. They say some are more responsive to the opioid epidemic, such as as the Northeast. 
it's interesting work uh, for those who are interested in opioids like myself. It's, it's definitely relevant to research-based practice. How it applies to clinical practice, kind of up in the air. I, I think there's a decided lack of granularity when you're talking about U.S. census regions. Those are devised for the census. They're not balanced. For example, the Northeast, I think you're, you're talking about Pittsburgh all the way to the border of Canada with Maine and including New York City and Boston. And as somebody who's lived in New York City and Boston, they're not anything alike. I, the Midwest is kind of like this nebulous Great Lakes region. And the West is just this huge expanse that, you know, essentially runs from like almost the Mississippi all the way to, to California. So you're talking about LA, but you're also talking about Montana. And um, those two areas really don't seem to have much in common. In addition, it's there are just 42 hospitals. And you know, while it's great that these are the children hospitals, these are not the only places that kids go. Uh, by and large, they may not actually even be the place that most children go. Some of these hospitals may not be represented, although they're in a certain area in the census region, they're not representative for the entirety of that census region. You know, maybe they have like the Children's Hospital in Seattle, so to speak. And, you know, the University Hospital in Seattle serves like a five state area. They have to helicopter people in from Alaska or Hawaii. Well, if a kid has, you know, a, a buckle fracture or something in Hawaii, they're not going to the Children's Hospital in Seattle. So these children's hospitals may also be more academically oriented, and they may be more likely to adhere to the best practices and recommendations, especially when it comes to opioids. They also have no visibility on refills or prescriptions after discharge in other clinical contexts. So they might not have gotten it from the children's hospital, but then they got it from their, their pediatrician or, or they, they, they got it from somewhere else or their, their parents have some and they're giving them to them. So all of these things are, are counterfactuals that may exist to some degree and you're just not seeing um, in, this, in this analysis. So interesting work, definitely worth a read. And again, it's free for 30 days, so don't take my word for it. I can't be doing this uh, every day, folks. Check it out and, and make your own decisions. Draw your own conclusions. And I agree with your conclusions there. I think one of the interesting things, just everything you said is exactly right. The And I just want to add one thing that was interesting is that 13 to 17 were the highest prescribers, but at 18, it wasn't, which they kind of consider an adult area, right? So that was kind of interesting, that one cutoff there. Right. But the point is there is that like there are probably plenty of 18 year olds who aren't going to the children's hospitals anymore. There are probably 16 year olds who aren't going to the children's hospitals anymore. On the flip side, there are 25 year olds who are going to children's hospitals and they're not accounted in this uh, analysis. So food for in the Xbox attending <laughs> the children's hospital. Look, I liked my pediatrician. I, try, I didn't want to go find a real adult doctor for the longest time. First of all, orthopedic surgeons don't see doctors, so it's a whole nother issue. <laughs> but unless you look in the mirror, that's all I can say to that one. <laughs> but yeah, completely agree. All right. So mine is on a different area. We're looking at trinoxemic acid on the far end of the spectrum of pediatric. Most pediatrics uh, don't get intertrochanteric fractures. I look at TXA was not associated with increased complications and high-risk patients with intertrochanteric fractures. This is by Porter et al. And there's a commentary. So same thing. Don't have to take my word or my opinion or my thoughts. 
but you can actually go find out someone else's who's probably smarter, better, and knows what they're talking about. But tranexamic acid is something that's near and dear to their I highly doubt. <laughs> well, arthroplasty surgeons are good when it comes to tranexamic acid. We really wanted to pioneer this. We did it in all sorts of forms, IV, oral, and topical. This one's specifically looking at intertrochanteric fractures. So, you know, in the realm of research, we're trying to narrow down what exactly everything applies to. We've done tranexamic acid in joints ad nauseum, tranexamic acid in hip fractures, most of them done either through hemiarthroplasty or total hip arthroplasty. Now we're going to intertroch fractures. So we're slicing the pie a little bit more and more along the way, but you know, it's a relevant topic because these patients tend to have a lot of comorbidities. So these patients said, okay, we have these comorbidities here. Are these patients safe to receive transcendent acid? Um, so they looked at a period of time and they said they did a propensity match study. So they basically matched these patients to one another, which is important in this type of study because these type of patients are, you know, have different comorbidities, as I said, before they encountered the need to undergo hip fracture repair. This did look at the same hospital system with multiple different hospitals and are separate units. So they don't have the same protocols. And this is over a, a longer time frame, so they were able to include more patients, but because of that, practices can change over time. So what happens is there are some people who did receive tranexamic acid and those who didn't receive tranexamic acid. And as you can probably guess, it was not delineated as to who was selected to get tranexamic acid and not to get tranexamic acid. So there's already a selection bias to some degree already with a study like this, as opposed to a prospective randomized control trial where you're randomizing every intertrochanteric fracture that comes in to get IV tranexamic acid or not. So that is one of the areas here you can be careful about it because those are different delineators. Maybe someone's like, oh, this patient's pretty healthy. Let's give them transcendent acid. Or the patient's not that healthy, so maybe we won't give them transcendent acid. Um, they did note that this was a safety study, which is important to hone in on, but I would have really rather to see some um, additional findings in it, such as calculated blood loss, not estimated blood loss. We're terrible estimators of blood loss, but calculated blood loss to see how much blood was actually lost during the procedure. And transcendent acid, in theory, should obviously mitigate that uh, in the setting of intertrochanteric fractures. And we know with intertrochanteric fractures, most of them, you don't open them up, you know, put the nail in, but there's blood loss that happens inside, hidden blood loss. So it would have been nice to quantify this and see the impact that tranexamic acid had on that. Now, there were no population differences, they said, between patients because it was propensity score matched, but it would be nice to understand why people did or did not administer tranexamic acid. But at the end of the day, it did find out that those who received tranexamic acid did use get care in the more recent years. And it makes sense as time has gone on, we've been more comfortable giving tranexamic acid to more and more patients, even with comorbidities. Um, higher ASA class. So we wanted to try to mitigate the risk of um, undergoing clots. And actually, they were likely to undergone surgery greater than 48 hours of admission. So the populations weren't truly identical in the context of those who did or did not get tranexamic acid in some respects. But the nice thing it says, again, no increased mortality or serious adverse events such as uh, VTE in the patient in the population that did receive tranexamic acid. There uh, was a small proportion who experienced a DVT in the TXA group, actually compared with the no TXA group, sorry, smaller proportion who received DVT. So interestingly enough, those who received tranexamic acid had zero DVTs, and those who did not receive tranexamic acid had a higher rate of clotting at 4.2%. So it's one of those things where I think in practice, it's changing. A lot of times we uh, have to discuss with anesthesia prior to surgery, whether or not this patient who's undergoing hip fracture repair with an intertrochanteric fracture that I'm nailing or putting a DHS in is able to receive tranexamic acid. And this gives us a little more fuel to say it's okay and safe to administer it, even in a high-risk patient.
But is that at the end of the day, the end result of this study is that it provides, it's that, you know, we talked about the uh, the lamppost uh, scenario. Is it just like, okay, here's something that I can rest my my hand on and I can like wave it at anesthesia's face and say, do this, do this, because this study says it, oh, you know, don't look at the selection bias and the unbalanced cohorts that are behind the green curtain. Ignore the man behind the green curtain. Just do it because this is, you know, showing showing what I want. This I, I found something that says what I want you to do, as opposed to this is really high quality research that in a very objective, scientifically sound way is demonstrating the universal utility and the idealize and endorsing what is what would be an idealized approach. I think it's more the former. But that's the whole point, right? For orthopedics to get what we want in the context of surgery, especially if our case is on hold. <laughs> Stereotypes based on reality. And that's the hard part about it is that the way that patients receive transceptive acid was biased, right? So call out to researchers again do a prospective randomized controlled trial on these patients, whether or not to get transcemic acid or not, that would be a better delay. No, I mean, it's, it, but see that that's the other thing is then people are like, Oh, well, uh, so, I mean, I guess we just have to do a randomized controlled trial, I guess. I mean, I guess we'll be happy until we have an RCT. No, I don't, I don't, it doesn't have to be that way, but there should be a more balanced assessment or more robust assessment. And if you can't do that with this particular cohort, because you know, it's, they're like two separate circles of a Venn diagram with no intersection, then there needs to be something out. Like you got to find another group or a larger group or more patients with better clinical variation. So it is, it isn't black and white. It isn't do an RCT or we'll never believe you, but do, do causal inference techniques, do instrumental variable stuff. There's more things that can be done without having to go to the knee jerk RCT. Really easy to write that at the end of a paper as a conclusion for further studies need to blank. But your point is that we can't just take our literature and just throw it and say, this is what we should do then because of this one study. Right, exactly. And this wasn't even the Your Case is on Hold featurette. So Your Case is on Hold is arthroscopic versus open anchor orthodesis, a five-year follow-up by Abu Hantash et al. It is free. And what do you think? Did you put this case on hold? Yeah, I mean, anesthesia's probably calling. You might not be picking up the phone yet, but they they are paging. <laughs> um so I mean, you know, these types of studies are always going to be at risk for uh they're ripe for for a hold. The study is a longitudinal cohort including patients who underwent primary ankle arthrodesis for the treatment of end-stage arthritis of Close to 1,300 patients who were screened, they have uh, 351 over a 16 to 17 year period who are eligible for for the study. And they um, do some mixed effects modeling, which is great. But at the end of the day, there is no holy water of uh, statistical analysis that can vanquish the vampire of issues within your substrate data. And they found after the mixed effects modeling that the differences in post-operative outcome scores between the groups were not significant. But this is really what you would expect and hope for if you have patients who are receiving properly indicated surgeries for the clinical issues that they have. It doesn't mean that the procedures are interchangeable. 
just like in the last study, we're talking to some degree about confounding by indication or a selection bias. Those individuals who merit the one type of surgery get that, and those who don't get the other one. But if you gave the other one to the to the individuals who had the and uh, uh, who were indicated for a different surgery, then the outcomes could be disastrous. It's just you're getting to the same space by two different roads. It doesn't mean that both roads are equal and everyone can travel both paths. So their findings are good and reassuring, nonetheless, but for the selection and indication bias that you have to take into account. And that's at, at even a higher risk in this work because. All the procedures are performed at a single tertiary care hospital by one of four fellowship trained foot and ankle orthopedic surgeons. So if you're working at this hospital and you're one of those four individuals, you're good to go. If you're like one of those four individuals and your hospital is just like the hospital where this is, then you're good to go. But other than that, you know, outcomes may not be as advertised. And as they say on, you know, the late night advertisements, results may not be typical, folks. So um, that's a question for, you know, those who are trying to apply this to their practice. Some other things here that really give me a cause for pause, we have limited complication rates, and this creates an issue uh, around, around power. If you look at their table six, you will see the total, the bottom row, the total number of reoperations in the arthroscopic group, 21, in the open group, 23. The percentages, that's 9% versus 18%, but these are not significantly different because you look at the 95% confidence intervals and they overlap by two percentage points. The upper bound on the arthroscopic group is 14%. The lower bound in the open group is 12%. So the conclusion is no significant difference, yet that's the complication rate is twice as high in the open group. So something twice as high may not be statistically significantly different, but I think that's clinically meaningful. And in a larger population of patients, that would be a significant difference. So that's something to keep in mind. And, and one of the reasons why I would say that this is on hold to some degree. In addition, deep infection and wound complications did not occur at all in the arthroscopic group. And that is a modeling issue. The sample is just not, it's not that those things never occur, they are rare, and they are so rare that they couldn't capture it in the individuals that they included in this study. And those are what we call artifacts and not the kind that Indiana Jones rescues from Peruvian Incan temples. Once again, we have shown that there's not something you possess that I cannot take away. It's too bad the Jovitos don't know you like I do, Antonia. Perhaps I could have warned them if only I spoke Jovitos. What time? They another language that, other than our cap that we need to pick up. Right. They would know that spine is the way to go for orthopedic trainees and not joint replacement surgery. Anyhow, <laughs> so that's a modeling issue. They're just not able to include all the possible outcomes that you're looking at. And this was graded as level three evidence. I think in light of everything that I've pointed out here, this really should be viewed as level four evidence. There's a high potential for confounding and residual issues within the model, despite you know, their best efforts at, at addressing those statistically. And to add a little bit more to it too, the length of follow-up was different between both groups too. Also true. Right. So table one kind of emphasized that. There was longer follow-up for the open group versus the arthroscopic group. So slight skewing as well there too, right? And there's way more 
arthroscopic patients than open patients. And you say, go to a different center, they could be flipped. It's very center dependent. So there is definitely that selection bias of how one patient got it for another. They already, they alluded a little bit to the selection bias, right? They had better preoperative scores. It looked like they underwent arthroscopic ones and they had less arthritis. So those are all confounding variables, as you said, and they did not necessarily make it into their mixed effects model analysis, actually. So they did do the pre-op scores for PROMS, but they didn't include things like level of arthritis. So and if you also look at their COFIS scores on table one, there's uh, a lot with the low and there's a lot more with the high. And then in between, there's just very little. So they're not modeling across all the spectrum of people. You've got low grade, high grade, and nothing in between or very little in between, which is also a problem. So anesthesia is calling. Got to be careful. Keep it a little bit on hold. They're like, we're pretty sure that we'll probably be able to get the line started in like four to six hours. And that's the line starting. <laughs> we need a little more time after that. All right. Let's do a little bit of toss-up action. Toss-up toss up time. Toss-up. Toss-ups. Toss four. Our end of the spectrum when it comes to the beauty of uh, arthroplasty. Modular fluted taper stems for periprosthetic femoral fractures. Excellent results in 171 cases by handing it all. So, you know, we used to do toss-ups with like a question and I have, I have a toss-up question for this. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Buckle up because the ride is taken off. An 18-year retrospective on modular fluted tapered stems. Is this really practice ready? That's my toss-up question. 171 Vancouver B2 and B3 periprosthetic femoral fractures treated with these modular fluted tapered stems almost two decades now, institutional total joint registry. The mortalities and other morbidities are going to be competing risks in this group with a mean age of 75 years. We know these types of fractures change the trajectory of patients in terms of function, mobility, and independence. We know that. It's, it's a seminal event, uh, sometimes a sentinel event in the lives of these individuals that then creates this divergent path that can lead to functional deterioration, decline, and unfortunately, that they can succumb to this, even if it's a few years down the road. And so those realities are going to be competing with the appetite and aptitude and application of revisions. How's that for some alliteration? Wow. 10 years, the, the, we're talking 17 cases. And again, it comes down to this confounding by both selection and indication on the part of the patient and their family members, as well as the surgeon. The revision indications, infection in six, dislocation in 11, these are relatively small numbers that may be driving these differences. And we see, again, the restricted event rates that are potentially creating artifacts in the model because you cannot model what isn't there. The statistical program can't see what is not present. They have no revisions for aseptic loosening. This may not be translatable. You would expect that in a, in a reasonable sample size, you would at least have some aseptic loosening. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're correct. I agree with you. I'm really underwhelmed on the, the limitation section. You know, they say the low incidence of complications that they may be underpowered to detect associations. I mean, that it's, they're acknowledging it, but in a very soft way, I feel like, you know, you could be a little bit more 
forthcoming. <laughs> and, you know, it's it all comes down to the artifacts in the model. In this case, they found an artifact. It's a gold-shaped box with some charts on top. They opened it up. It looked like dust, and now their face is melting off. That's what happens when you mess with the curse. <laughs> Do not mess with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is to be touched by only certain individuals at certain times, such as Vancouver B2 fractures and Van- Vancouver B3 fractures only at certain times. Whether it's modular or non-modular, that's a whole question, right? So I'm in agreement with you. It's a, it's a the biggest series that's out there, but in general, it doesn't garner or change the needle and move things. It's only two systems they looked at. They looked at a uh, modular stem. I'm a I'm partial to modular stems, but we're all partial to what we use. So you look at individuals who didn't use a modular stem, they probably have very good follow-up and uh, outcomes as well too. So, you know, I think why this is one of those studies where they wanted to look at every aspect as possible, you know, revision, reoperation, death, radiographic evaluation, complications, clinical outcomes from the Harris HIP score. So they hit the topics that you needed to go down to to get a research study out, but whether or not this moved the needle in a clinical practice is probably not great because those who use the modular stems are going to keep using them and those who don't won't use them. So more fodder, more drunk using a lamppost for support. So I can take this and say, here we go. I'm going to use my modular stem. And for, it those with, for those inclined to modular stems, here you go. Great, great results, great outcomes. It's all good. Just, uh, you know, sign your name on the dotted line. Done. We're doing something new now. Do you want to introduce yeah. our new little area here? Right. We have a new, a new section which we call honorable mentions uh, as we expand the scope of the Your Cases on Hold podcast. These are the other um, articles that are featured uh, in this month's issue of the journal. Histologic differences in human rotator cuff muscle based on tear characteristics by Ruderman and colleagues. Racial, ethnic, and gender diversity in academic orthopedic surgery leadership by Meadows and colleagues. Surgical anatomy of the radial nerve at the dorsal region of the humerus, a cadaveric study. Really interesting basic uh, cadaveric work from Well and colleagues. Uh, Internal torsion of the knee and embodiment of lower extremity malrotation in patients with patellar instability by Chow and colleagues. This is also 30 days free and has an infographic, so visual learners. Uh, you need to get in on that. And then transficeal distal humerus fractures, a 13 times greater risk of non-accidental trauma compared with supracondylar humeral um, fractures in children less than three years of age. This is Crow and colleagues, and there's a visual summary for that as well. We have enjoyed presenting uh, this session to you all. Remember, if you are coming to the Your Cases on Hold podcast for the first time, check out the 12 episodes that have preceded this for really great Easter eggs, as well as incredible, impeccable JBJS knowledge. And um, for those who yet who have yet to do so, please uh, subscribe and uh, give us a five-star rating on uh, Spotify or Apple. That really helps us out and helps out um, the JBJS organization as a whole. Hopefully you guys have come away a little bit more entertained, intellectually enriched, and maybe your case is ready to go, but our case here is still on hold. On hold. See you next time. <laughs>